Why do we give gifts? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Tony Gill. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Tony Gill. Tony is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, adjunct professor of sociology at the University of Washington, distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, and a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He specializes in political economy and religion and politics, with an emphasis on church-state relations, religious liberty, and religious economies. Additionally, Tony has become internationally renowned for his work on defense of tipping. He is also author of the political origins of religious liberty, and rendering unto Caesar, the Catholic Church and the state in Latin America. Tony has published numerous journal articles, book chapters, and was the creator and host of the Research on Religion podcast series, which ran from 2010 to 2018. His current research agenda, among other things, includes an examination of how norms function to coordinate behavior in society in lieu of government, and he's working on a number of projects, including the comparative endurance of religious institutions and the socioeconomic benefits of gift-giving, the last one being the subject of our conversation today. And before we get started, I want to welcome you all listening to this year's edition of our annual Christmas episode. I hope everyone has a happy holidays and a happy new year, and I'm looking forward to speaking with Tony Gill about something everyone enjoys, more or less, at the holidays, gift-giving. Tony? Welcome to The Curious Task. Ho, ho, ho. It is great to be on here during this festive holiday season. Thank you for inviting me. And it's great to have you on, of course. So, Tony, we frame each of our episodes around a question and we go over the answers and conversation takes us. Today's jolly question is, why do we give gifts? And I think before we jump right to answering that question, I wanted to touch on why you're interested in the topic in the first place and what got you interested in it. And I found that a poem that you had written, the first chunk of it, actually tells the story nicely. So everyone, I'm going to hand it off to Tony to read out and treat us to the first section of a very important poem. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the land, economists were worried about supply and demand. They worried about waste and transaction costs. All those presents we buy just produce deadweight loss." The logic is simple, some economists claim. Without information, there can be no trade game. The recipient knows their own desires better, yet the giver gives them a hideous cat sweater. Our problem is clear. It's a preference mismatch. Life would be better if we just gave cold cash. (laughs) Excellent. So we'll stop there for a second. So obviously, I I think the the poem is awesome because it really explains what's going on there. But but let's unpack that a little further. In other words, what's going on? Let's build the case for what some economists uh, say as to why it's not a good idea to to give gifts or do gift giving. What's, What's going on here? Yeah, so you asked me why I got interested in this puzzle. And when I started at my university about uh, 27 years ago, there was an article published by Professor Waldvogel in the American uh, Economic Review. It was a short one, and it was called The Deadweight Loss of Christmas. And it was a great little exploration of using microeconomic logic to tell people that all these gifts that we buy are wasteful. And I thought it would be a great thing to do in my political economy classes just to break up some of the typical monotony. Everybody gets gifts. We all experience uh, the holidays, either the Christmas holidays or birthdays or something like that. And so students had something to talk about to explore these concepts with. And as I've done this over the years, this has been one of the more popular topics. Students really get into it. And I finally got around to working with one of my colleagues, Michael uh, Thomas at Creighton University, and we're doing a project on this now. And we're really trying to push back a little bit at Professor Waldvogel's initial piece, which later on became a popular article, I believe, in Forbes or Fortune magazine. And then uh, he wrote a book about it. And it's a very tongue-in-cheek approach. We're not critical of Professor Waldvogel for doing this. Um, We find it kind of interesting. But his argument really emphasizes the the dismal science part of economics. It's the economist saying Christmas is wasteful. 
And you, you think about this time during this year when we're giving gifts and everybody's smiling with that one another and says, how could an economist ever think this is wasteful? And, and the logic is fairly simple. And you probably know it intuitively. I mean, Alex, I'll ask you this. Have you ever received a gift that you open it up and you go, oh, man, what was this person thinking? This thing is hideous. I don't I actually don't think I ever have thought that. Really? Yeah, I remember I think like maybe I'm just tr- trying to immediately force myself to to be polite, but I I I can I can at least say that I've definitely received one and I I just, you know, it it missed the mark in the most polite way I could say. Let's put it yes, that way. Yes, missing the mark is exactly what this whole concept of deadweight loss is. And I I love this because when Professor Waldfogel's article came out and when I started using this in class, uh, my wife and I had just been married uh, for about two years or so. And at our wedding, we we received this um, statue and it was hideous. Mm. Um, neither, and we had that plight aspect is from one of my aunts who I, I love dearly. Right. Right. And I was like, how could my aunt who I grew up with going to her farm all the time and stuff like this, how could she possibly know that I would like something like this? And it it was it was something that we were just going to put into a closet. Right. We wouldn't throw it away. You know, just kind of keep it around. It takes up space. And we would rather have cash. Hmm. Um, and that's the kind of logic. I bet many of your listeners out there have received a gift. You're just like, oh, that's really nice. You have the polite moment. But, man, you know, I really would have had you give something different. Yeah. Uh, and the problem as Professor Waldfogel explains, is because there's this preference mismatch. Asymmetric information, to use some fancy economic jargon, means that you know the person who's giving you the gift doesn't really know what you want. And they give you some resource, and you don't want it. And so that resource gets wasted. Well, Professor Waldfogel did a little test in his, his own course with some students, and he found initially that students um, valued the gifts that they received at Christmas time about 17% less. Um, and if it was from a distant relative, like an aunt you didn't see, it, it actually went up to about 33%. Mm-hmm. And he saw this as a deadweight loss. You're getting resources that you're not going to value at the price that the giver gave to you. And you know that's a huge loss for society. It'd be better if you just gave people cash. They bought the things they liked. They were happy with those things, and um, the economy would be better for it. We, in, in in many ways too, this is somewhat of a you know critique of consumerism. We're just buying things to buy things, and around this time of year, they say, "Well, retailers are selling all this stuff, but what are we selling it for? Just to be put into a closet and never be brought out again." Um, and oftentimes, too, some of the dead weight loss is the fact that uh, you, you thought somebody knew you pretty well and you find out they didn't. And mm-hmm. now you're a little bit sour on the relationship. Um, I should also note that Professor Waldfogel just did this with the gifts. He didn't even think about all the wrappings and the bows right. or even cards. Right. That's a good point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, why do we have to wrap gifts? That's you just wrap them up and then you you know throw it into the recycling bin or Christmas cards. Right. This is one thing I bring up with my students. I send Christmas cards to people I haven't seen for 30, 35 years. Mm. You know, old friends from college and high school. And I, you know, I'm never going to see them again, probably in person. But we send these cards. Right. And, you know, now they're, you know, a buck, two bucks, three bucks a piece, sometimes sometimes even more. Um, Wouldn't we be better if we just use that stuff for things that people wanted? And that's the big puzzle here. Right. So, so so the ultimate argument at the end of the day is having considered everything you just said, like if you if you are going to do something, many economists will argue, basically, you may as well just give someone cash so then they can go seek their own value and do their own exchange. That's the ultimate argument in a nutshell. Yep. And that's the you, straight line you know, economy, economic approach of trying to maximize utility and find that beautiful equilibrium where all resources have been allocated in a Pareto optimal uh, manner. Right. And we're, we're going to jump to the, the second chunk of, of the poem here because uh, Tony at one point, something occurred to him. So I'll, I'll let him take the next part and, and tell the story here to move the conversation along. It was then at that moment, I cried out in despair. Oh, why do we give gifts? Oh, why do we care? I started to cry. Tears filled my Adam Smith mug, a <laughs> gift I was given. Economics, humbug. But then came a sudden noise from the attic. Two scholars yelled out, 
that model's too static. Right. So holding it there, what do you mean by that? What, what <laughs> occurred to you? And, and, and explain that to the listeners. So again, the, the sentiment we started off with in that part of the poem was that um, this is kind of sad, right? This is economists ruining Christmas. This is Ebenezer Scrooge, <laughs> right? The econ- uh, economic profession presenting themselves as, as people telling them all this festivity is just a, a waste of resources. Bah humbug, right? And, and that's kind of disappointing. And my students felt it that way, too. And there's, there's a, a puzzle here for economics that's subtly underlying all of what we just talked about is that if this institution of gift giving is so inefficient and and horrible for the economy, just dragging things down. Why has it persisted for so long? And not just for so long, but across almost every culture in society, uh, gift giving, sacrificial offerings of your resources, burning things um, publicly and stuff uh, is, is very common. And, and it's one of the most common rituals. There's an anthropologist um, Marcel Mauss, who about 100, 150 or 120 years ago, uh, wrote about this. And in a book called The Gift, he says, gifting is ubiquitous. Hmm. And so we, we, Michael Thomas and I sat down and I said, well, you know, what, what are economists missing? Right. And it's, and our students are picking this up, by the way, because there's this vitriolic reaction. Don't tell us that gifting is inefficient. Yes. I received a gift I don't like, and it is a dead weight loss, but darn it. I like gifting. And we said, well, the problem here is that the model that these economists have been working off of is very static. We're just trying to find that equilibrium point where, you know, everybody's, you know, optimal gift is matched with them and cash does this by lowering transaction costs and reducing uncertainty, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is that gifting doesn't happen in a static environment. It's very dynamic. Right. We, we have done this over time. It's reciprocal even though the definition of a gift is giving of yourself without any expectation in return, a lot of gifting rituals have that expectation of reciprocity built in, that you give somebody something and they give you something back. You visit somebody's holiday party and you bring a gift of a, a bottle of wine. And when you hold the party, you're going to expect that everybody else brings wine here. And the value, even though th- there might be some deadweight loss, you, you didn't bring the right gift here. The real value is in the dynamism of the process, that the model that we need to think about is the repeated interactions of people gifting with one another, building relationships, showing each other that I am willing to sacrifice some of my resources to burn um, valuable things, my own resources to give you something, even if you don't like it, I'm willing to sacrifice that for you because I want a relationship with you. I want to, you know, uh, show you that if you're ever in need, I'm willing to sacrifice. If, if you need to come over and your car is broken down, you need a ride to the airport, I'm there for you to do that. Um, and we live in a world of uncertainty where we can't tell that automatically with anybody. So we have these little rituals uh, that we engage in as a society that says, yeah, um, you can trust me. I'm, I'm going to give you some resources. And if you give me resources, I'm going to reciprocate in return. I'm a good person. You can trust me. Right. And and actually, I think that's a great. Well, let's just tie that right to the last part of, of of your poem there. So, so why don't why don't we get to that to further extend the thought and put a finer point on it? So, how do we end off uh, the, this this version of "Twas the Night Before Christmas"? All right. And so, for these two economists here, both Michael Thomas and myself, they further explain gift gifts give gifts. Yes, we must. It's about building networks and instilling trust. Think broadly, they claimed, about maximization. You don't give gifts once. Rituals create iteration. And so we gather together to give and receive. And now from this poem, we take a reprieve to explain to you all our social science logic to show that good culture is good economics. Right. So, so, so that's, that's the, that's the most interesting part to me is like you said, people have to broaden their lens and think of this more as a ritual, as a custom, not just the actual micro ex- exchange or, or giving, if you will, that's ultimately what, what, what you're getting at. Right, exactly. It, the, the initial experiments and surveys that Professor Waldfogel did and was repeated by a number of other uh, economists, his, his uh, initial study 
generated a lot of interest, more, more so than I thought it would. I thought it was a rather, you know, tongue-in-cheek application of, you know, basic economics, and it was cute and everything like that. But people took it seriously, and they were all just one-shot games. So you received a gift. How much do you value it um, for? And, oh, it's about, you know, 10% less than what you would have paid for it. You would rather have the cash. But they never really looked at the, the the fact that, well, did somebody a week or two ago give you a gift or last year on your birthday give you a gift and you're mm-hmm. returning the gift? And what are those social relationships that are involved there? Um, it, it fills it out more. It brings it into a more cultural context. And this is something that e- economics has lost sight of over a long period of time. Adam Smith knew it back in the 18th century when he wrote the theory of moral sentiments, he understood that people are not just rational utility maximizers. Mm -hmm. We're embedded in a a world of cultural norms and and rituals. And but over time we've lost that. And and nowadays we're starting to rediscover that as economists and as political economists to understand that there's certain cultural institutions that we cherish in and of themselves, but also are actually efficient for the economy. And I want to go back to Adam Smith uh, and and talk about the puzzle that he sets up and how gifting solves this. Smith, in his Wealth of Nation, has a basic recipe for how societies prosper. He says it's the division of labor conditioned upon the extent of the market will lead to the wealth of nations. Right. The idea is division of labor. I know many of your listeners will know this. It makes us more efficient using our resources as we specialize, become very good at what we do. We innovate and find new ways of doing things. But in order to do that, we need to extend the market. Because if I'm specializing in one thing, I can't do other stuff. So people have to provide for me. Well, and that that's great. But the market, in order to take advantage of that division of labor, has to be very broad. Right. And that means you're going to start meeting people who you don't know quasi-anonymous trade, and even anonymous trade. And a problem arises here is that when you start moving into a a market where there's a lot of people you don't know, how do you trust them? Mm. So uncertainty about the intentions and motivations of other people looms large. It's one of the greatest transaction costs in the economy. And we need institutions that help mitigate help reduce that uncertainty to know that, hey, if you pass somebody on the street or if you go into a shop you've never been before, they're going to treat you well. You can trust them. They're good people. And what Michael Thomas and I are arguing is that that is exactly what gifting is doing, Hmm. is that by showing, by making sacrifices, I'm going to burn some of my resources and give them to you. Even if you don't like it, I'm just making this effort to say, hey, I appreciate you. Here's something. And somebody will return that uh, in, in, you know, reciprocate. And even if the gift isn't exactly appropriate, it's the, the giving of the gift that says, hey, I am willing to make these sacrifices. So one of the most important characteristics of gifting rituals is their sacrificial nature. Mm. And you can look back in history and in, in religious uh, ceremonies, uh, burnt offerings are very common. Right. You see this and, you know, you take your first fruits, your the most succulent lamb and just burn it to pieces so nobody can use it. And these are societies that need food. Why would you do that? Right. It's the idea that, hey, I'm here and can be trusted if something ever goes wrong. In a more kind of a sterile economic sense, we all write these little contracts with each other when we exchange but we can't specify every single aspect of the contract. And if something goes wrong, can I trust that the other person will you know, make it good again? Will correct the mistake or will they just you know, screw me and say, ah, you know, too bad. You, you know, and that's not good for the economy because if that happens, we stop trading with one another. Um, and so these are ways, this, this cultural institution of gifting is a way of telling people that, hey, I can be trusted because I can burn resources. I, I I burn my you know most succulent lamb and I I burn my um, first fruits. And I'm giving you this gift of myself because hey I'm I'm a good person can be trusted down the line. Right, and this is where to get a little more technical and nerdy about the concept that you're pursuing. Like you know you talked about the bird offering part, then you said that results in what what you would call the efficient smoke sort of part, right? 
Yeah, our paper was initially called The Efficient Smoke of Burnt Offerings because the, the burnt offerings, you know, an economist would look at one of these rituals and see you burning your, your first fruit, you know, your, your most succulent lamb and go, you're crazy. Right. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's a so source of nutrition. So we should optimally, you know, calculate out what everybody's calorie count should be and give them this at parties and, and things like this, but you're just destroying it. You're nuts. And I go, but look at the smoke, look at what is coming from this. It's a person that's saying, I'm willing to pay a cost to do something for you. And, and again, we, we just uh, wrote an article on Halloween. And one of the fun things that I like about this holiday, it's a gifting holiday. Your kids go around to other houses and they get candy and, and things like that. Um, but the, the houses in the neighborhood that don't participate in this uh, holiday, they turn off the lights and they tell kids, you know, go away, scoot. You know, they're not the people that you're going to go to if your lawn tractor breaks down and you need to borrow theirs, mm. or if you need a couple eggs, you know, to help cook because those people are like, go away, go away. Right. right. Um, it's the people who like give out the big Snickers bars and mm. decorate their houses there. They want to participate in the community. Right. They want to make relations with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same thing that we see in these gifting rituals. One of the other aspects that's important of it is not only the sacrificial nature, but the public nature of it. And you could say, well, yeah, but gift giving, you know, we're you know, Christmas is coming. We're going to do it in our living room and nobody's going to see it. Not true. Mm. We know that everybody around this time of year is exchanging gifts. We see all the decorations that we put outside businesses, paint their windows with Santas and snowmen and all these things. And, you know, you, you just do a, a, a little gut check for yourself. If you're going down a street and you see a lot of businesses that have the snowmen painted on the windows right. and they have the garland up in the lights. And then there's a business that doesn't. And you go, hmm, that business that doesn't, they're just kind of not participating in the community. You know, because, well, they're a different religion or faith like this and say, okay, maybe that's it. But, you know, it's the ones that really go out of their way to, mm -hmm. to make a spectacle of it are businesses that say, hey, we want to be part of the community. You can trust us if, if we're a pizza parlor and we make your pizza wrong, we'll make it right for you. We're not going to charge you for right. it. We're going to be good. And these are these little signals. Right. Um, so the holiday, these, these public holidays, you know, Christmas, Halloween, Valentine's Day, um, are all done visibly so that we know, even though I don't know what you're giving to your sweetheart or to your family or to your kids, I still know you're doing it. And that's important. That spreads this broad, uh, broad range trust, which is really, really important for markets to uh, run efficiently, especially if you want to have a very broad base extended market with lots of anonymous and quasi anonymous um, exchanges. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, like you, it seems people in intuitively know this because they will often natural just talk about the Christmas spirit or the holiday spirit, right? If if someone is participating in it or not, right? You know, that, that usually doesn't mean to your point that, oh, so-and-so, they have a lot of holiday spirit, they're going to give me a gift. That That's actually not what people do. They think of it more in a, in a broader sense, right? So whether it is the gift giving or the decorating and so on and so forth, it's sort of like that broader uh, sort of, I think you talked about the, the, the overall atmosphere of social exchange. I have a quote written here from you. So like, I, I think that's a really good point, right? Is that nobody... I hope refers to the holiday spirit as just give me a gift. It's it's you would you would comment on whether someone is engaged in that overall spirit and atmosphere or not. Yeah, and it it becomes a very ritualistic process. And this is another component that we bring to light in the dynamic sense of gifting is that there are certain holidays that occur during different parts of the year. In the Christian, you know, tradition it's Christmas, uh it's Easter, but other religious traditions have the same thing. Judaism has, um, you know, Hanukkah and a few other gifts where people gather, or uh, excuse me, gifting holidays where people gather together and celebrate with one another. Um, a number of other religious traditions do the same thing, and it's they the you've you've centered these things around specific times of the year and specific behaviors too. That you know, you go around singing Christmas carols. You go around with with banquets. If food, mm -hmm. by the way, is is a huge uh, sacrificial offering, and that goes back in history too. Is that when it, I, I talked about Marcel Mauss 
early on, um, noticing that gifting is ubiquitous in almost every part of the world and history that he looked into. Mm -hmm. One of the most common gifts is just these banquets of food. Right. You know, societies that are living on the subsistence will invite the neighboring tribe over and there'll be this huge celebration where you throw away food. Mm -hmm. and, and we see this too, when you go to somebody's uh, house for Christmas feast, right? It, you might be hosting it and you're worried, do I have enough food? Do I have enough food? And you make too much. Right, right. Or you go somewhere and they, they make too much. And there's a reason for this is that I'm willing to overfeed you to show you that I'm willing to sacrifice for you. Uh, yeah, I don't know anybody that tries to like optimize the amount of food they put out at a Christmas table. You want to show there's an abundance and you want people to feel great coming over. That's what most people do, right? Absolutely. I mean, you can imagine, you know, going over to one of those, you know, micro economist house that say, okay, you know, if you come <laughs> over by five, I've realized that you've already had 1500 calories of your daily 2000 intake. So I've made everybody little baskets of 500 calories each. I, that'd be horrible. Right? Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what are you saying? You're only willing to do something for me up to the point of my near survival and nothing more. Wow, I don't know if I want to hang around with you that much, especially in you know if I'm I'm in time of need. You're not the person I'm going to go to. Exactly, and actually, that's about an excellent place to take our break. So, so we'll do that right now, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tony Gill today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Amy Willis, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tony Gill today. So, Tony, I, I had to... I think we were having a great chat there. I had to break us because it was about that time, but uh, we, we were just getting into a lot of great stuff. And over the break, we quickly mentioned about you wanted to jump into reciprocity next, tying it to your, your previous thoughts that you were talking about. So, so why, why don't we go ahead and talk about that, the overall idea of the, the reciprocal nature of reciprocity? Yeah, there's several characteristics about gifting art that are important. We've already covered the sacrificial nature, the ritualistic nature, which uh, ties in with the public nature of all these gifting rituals that everybody can see that everybody else is you know, willing to sacrifice for one another. It makes for a better society where we trust people. But the fourth characteristic of the gifting process is the reciprocity. And I hinted at this a little bit earlier. I said, well, a gift is defined as me giving you something with nothing expected in return. Right. It's not like going to a store and purchasing a couple cans of soup and handing over some some dollars that, you know, there's an exchange there. Uh, but nonetheless, most gifting rituals have some degree of reciprocity built into them. Uh, I go to your birthday party, Alex, and I bring you a gift. I don't expect you to give anything in return. But when my birthday rolls around, I you know hope that you're going to come to my party, or if you see me at the office or on the street, you say, "Hey, let me buy you a, a few beers, right, or something." Um, and speaking of that, too, we have these gifting rituals within our own little communities. Or friends buy each other rounds of beer you know, at at the bar after work or something, and it's always uh, implicitly stated that you're going to buy the next round or somebody else will. And that reciprocity is important, too, because that's what markets need to function well. One of the problems I have with you know, basic economics is that we teach people in this kind of you know, sterile environment of exchanging money for goods and things like this. And so you see a buyer and a seller or an employee and an employer. And it, it seems like there's, you know one person is doing one thing for another person. But if you really look at it, it's it's reciprocity that's going on there. When I go to the grocery store and buy some things, I'm saying, hey, thank you for you know having all this stuff conveniently located for me on shelves. I'm going to give to you something that I have. Right Now, I normally would give you political economy lectures, but most of the people at Safeway and my grocery stores don't want that. <laughs> um, you know, so I give them you know money, which helps to reduce transaction costs and stuff. But that doesn't diminish the aspect that you know, that um, economic transactions are reciprocal. 
we're, we're, there's two people involved in this. The employer and the employee relationship, too, is this reciprocal thing. The employer gives you the opportunity to, to use your skills somewhere and do you know, wonderful things that will make people happy, and they give you something in return. And that's the beauty of markets. I, I emphasize this in my class a lot because it takes away the, you know, the sterile money being exchanged. And that's all about greed and optimizing and stuff. No, there's, it's about human relations, right? bringing people together who have things that other people want and exchanging. It's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing. Um, one of uh, economists I've grown to appreciate over time, Glenn Lowry, has written this article about relations before transactions that we need to understand that we need to interact with one another before we start even thinking about the optimization process that goes on in economics. And and gift giving is this cultural institution that builds those relations. It allows us to say, hey, I give unto you, you give unto me. We're in this together. There's a lot of this reciprocity that goes on. Let's continue exchanging. That's beautiful. That builds wealthy and prosperous economies. Right. And pushing forward a little uh, further on some economic concepts, too. Of course, economists like to talk about things like externalities, whether they be positive or negative externalities. And in this case, um, just going down that path, as you were sort of pointing to before, it isn't always about just what's happening between you or another person or a group of people. You say there's also third parties involved here. There's there's positive externalities to burnt offerings. So we were talking about that. So that's pretty much the idea of tying it back to what you were saying. That's the the atmosphere, right? That That's people contributing mm-hmm. to the overall, I guess, you know, social circumstance or society they find themselves in is what you're arguing. Yeah, it's the process of giving. It's a dynamic process. We don't live in a static economic world where we're trying to find that, you know, perfect supply demand, you know, equilibrium point. But it's an ongoing type of relationship that we're always building. And this is this instills this, right? This whole idea of a, a process of giving, exchanging, sacrificing for one another um, is, is really that positive externality. I mean, think about this. You're kind of walking down the street and you just see you know, two strangers and meet one another and somebody gives a, a package to somebody and they open that package right there in front of you. You're kind of like, that's that's sweet. That's really wonderful. You have right. this better feeling about humanity that people are willing to do that. You, you see hmm. people you know, you know, doing toys for tots for kids that can't get a lot of gifts. They're giving unto themselves. And you have that warm glow. And that warm glow is nice inherently, right? So it, it's beautiful. It makes you feel wonderful for a time, but it's good for the economy. This is something that, you know, we did this uh, paper and we often bring in images of uh, Christmas Carol and, and Scrooge, right? Scrooge was the typical, uh, you know, cold-hearted economist that would optimize everything. But at the end of the tale, you know, Scrooge really kind of understood that warm glow. Um, you know, he, his, his, uh, I think it was his nephew, Fred, you know, tried to tell him about this, but he was resistant. Right. But, you know, when the three ghosts visit him, you know, he understands that by seeing other people happy and exchanging and relating with one another, that's really good. And by the end of a Christmas Carol, he learns that lesson that, you know, it's good to give. He, he buys the biggest goose for Bob Cratchit and he tips the person who delivers it. Um, which is really kind of cool. And, and a lot of people see this, well, this is, you know, anti-capitalist, you know, Scrooge is the capitalist epitome of capitalism right, right at the beginning, but then he becomes something more. Our argument here is that, no, those positive externalities are crucial for a market economy to function efficiently. Scrooge becomes a great capitalist, a much better capitalist by the end of A Christmas Carol, because he understands that giving to others will come back to him tenfold. Right. And that, and that goes back to your point about thinking of this more broadly, right? It's not just the straight up commercial transaction that people have to worry about. Some might argue that it's a loss that Scrooge isn't at his factory or whatever, telling people to work that day because he's out doing other things. But back to your point about us thinking more of markets in a broader sense, Scrooge is still contributing to, you know, the market economy overall, living in a free society of exchange, right? He just happens to be doing something else. And that's a positive externality, as you said. It sort of reminds me of, you know, when a video on YouTube gets 11 million views or something of someone doing something very nice, which is, you know, a low cost to them, but millions of people in the comments, they read it and say, this made my day today, or this makes me want to do something like that myself, right? It kind of reminds me of the same thing. 
Yeah, there's that beauty of it. It's it's the relations of us, you know, getting together. I I wish more economists would really emphasize the point of markets bringing people together, right? People finding one another who I have something to offer you, you have something to offer me. Because that is really what is going on. And mm. it's a much better way to sell markets or capitalism to people when they understand that instead of like, I'm just trying to maximize my profit over you by trying to you know, get as much money as I can for you. No, that's not what it's about. Right. Smith didn't see that as it being um you know, the economy being what uh, what it was, too. So right. it, I think it's imperative that we understand markets in this broader context. Right. Well, I mean, like later on in The Wealth of Nations, he talks about just if someone were to just focus and just become, the, you know, the ultimate division of labor machine, they'd become stupid and ignorant in his words. So like he understands that there's a broader human relation aspect to this. Absolutely. Right. And I think yeah. I think in this way, too, one can say that markets, you know, they're not just, you know, coordinating, of course, because they are they are amazing. But I mean, they're not just coordinating the exchange of money for an object or, or an object for an object or whatever the case may be where people find each other. They're also in a way coordinating to your point, like the human relations, right? There's a lot more going on there. I mean, how many I'm sure anyone who has done any form of business or even a job search or whatever, you know, through the mechanisms of the market, they find themselves also building human relations through this process too. not just great. I did my exchange. I'm done. Most people develop or relationships or discover new friends or whatever through the market processes. So I agree with you. Absolutely. It's totally a broader lens we need to take. Yeah. And I, I teach this to my students too, to see markets everywhere as, as part of this relations. And a good example of this is Valentine's day mm. that, you know, that's another gifting holiday. There are specific rituals. You're, you're supposed to give jewelry or candy or very frivolous things. In fact, it's one of the most frivolous of holidays, right? You, you shouldn't give, you know, pots and pans or vacuum cleaners that day. That's not good, right? You really need to burn some resources here because what you're, you're not trying to say, oh, here, I know you enjoy candy. So this will give you, you know, five utiles of pleasure for having this chocolate and, you know, melt in your mouth. No, what you're saying is that, hey, I want to be with you for a long time and for better or for worse, especially the for worse part, if something goes wrong, I'm going to be there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that kind of relationship uh, that you see on Valentine's Day is really embedded in a lot of other types of relationships. The, the store owner who you know sells you a donut um, wants you to come back. You know, they, they did something, and they would warm as their heart to say, "This is a delicious donut. I'm going to tell my friends. I'm going to come right. back here next week." Um, I I have you know my favorite taverns that I you know I go to, and all my friends are there, and the staff knows us. It becomes a family. Right. It's exactly. More than just a business. And even with large corporations, like, oh, the faceless corporations and stuff, you know, the Starbucks of the world, um, they have managers there. You start to build relations and meet other people in these kind of places. And, you know, the more and more we understand that, the warmer, you know, our economic trans- uh, transactions become something that really can't be caught in all these, you know, formal models of the, you know, economic bibs. Uh, economic journals that we see now not to say that those are bad they do help us understand a lot of stuff there's a lot more going on and and i think as as political economists to really understand society writ large we need to understand the cultural context in which all of this occurs right yeah and 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 you know i find like just as you say shifting the lens a bit broadening whatever that really helps the mentality and how people can look at something like valentine's day or gift giving and to, to me it, it you know, i think i think and of course you correct me if i'm wrong if i'm simplifying too much but to me it just one of the simplest ways of thinking about it is you know stop thinking about just sort of the gift itself and think of gifting overall that's kind of the way i thought about it when i saw your work on this yeah that ing at the end it's it, the gift is a thing, but the gifting is a process that continues on and on and builds connections with one another. Right, exactly. I just want to, as our time is on the last swing here, I just want to um, get get into a, a couple of nerdy points I think some of our listeners would like. This was on a conclusion slide in one of the presentations that uh, you and your colleague do. Um, you, you summarized a couple of implications, uh, especially for those thinking on economics and that are into that stuff. I, I like them. I want to run through some of them here because I know a lot of people are interested in the, in the sort of uh, theory and then some of the thought process behind certain economics, uh, you know, approaches and schools of thought. So here's where you say one of the implications here is that neoclassical economics gives us a sterilized trade or view on that. Austrian economics, on the other hand, explains the fuzziness and uncertainty around trade. 
and then you go on with a couple of other points there too. But but for the, for those listening that are really into those kind of points there, just just to start out, why why is it important to keep these two schools of thought in mind, and and how does that tie into what you've been talking about? So usually most undergraduate students and even graduate students get their introduction to economics in that economic uh, 101 class where you have the supply demand curves. And those supply demand curves are are drawn very nice and clean. In fact, I remember in one of my college economics classes, one of the exercises was to calculate what the equilibrium point would actually be. Mm-hmm. And they you know gave you a schedule of you know how much bales of wool you would like and you know bottles of wine or something like this and it would exchange for and you you draw it out and you find that exact point and and i i have found when students go through that econ 101 class and even graduate students when they get into the econometric modeling and measuring of all this stuff start to really internalize that these lines really exist in that kind of precision and that leads many people, especially policymakers, government mm-hmm. policymakers, that we can find that exact equilibrium point where everybody is happy, that Pareto optimal point. And I, I felt that way too for you know a number of years and, and studying this. But then I, I got introduced to Austrian economics, which makes that all a little bit fuzzy. You know, Hayek's famous 1945 article about the uses of knowledge in society blew my mind because it says that. The implication there is that that equilibrium point doesn't exist. It's changing all the time. It, it, it's ephemeral at best, right? It's it's there, but then you find different things that you like, and people introduce things to you, and and you don't know exactly, you know, how many cans of soup you would buy or bales of wool you would purchase at this, these kind of things. So it's that really kind of fuzziness in the world that is it makes it much more interesting. The problem is though is that if there aren't these you know, specific points that we can calculate easy and the world is fuzzy and changing all the time, leads to uncertainty, how do human beings really mitigate that? How do we manage that uncertainty? And some of the work of Pete Betke uh, with folks like Adam Martin and uh, Casares, I can't remember his first name right now, it, you pointed out that we build institutions to mitigate these things. Mm-hmm. And usually for you know, a policymaker, so institutions, those are laws, and those are organizations that are very formal that, you know, deal with these things. Right. But what we're trying to say here with this piece is that a lot of our institutions are these very informal, casual types of relationships we have with each other. Gifting is an institution that's very important for helping us come together to find out what we want, to meet supply and demand, to bring people together. Uh, it's these little cultural institutions that seem irrelevant to scholars that, you know, we, we study big things like, you know, the World Trade Organization and the Federal Reserve. Those are important things. Right. But most of our lives are really governed not by these laws, these mm-hmm. formal laws that are written in D.C. or Ottawa or somewhere. Right. They're they're laws that that we form ourselves in cultural communities and in the, the ideas of reciprocity amongst your friends, right? You have rules about, you know, how you kind of buy rounds for one another. And if somebody lost their job, they don't have to do it for a little bit until they get back on their feet and, right. and those kind of things. It, it's those cultural institutions that help guide us and paying attention to these informal cultural institutions is critical for understanding how markets work. And I think it's also critical too, you know, from a liberty standpoint, because the more and more we rely upon governments to solve these, you know, disequilibrium problems uh, that we face or uncertainty, the less freedom we have. Human beings are actually really good at figuring out how to get together with one another, mm-hmm. how to exchange with one another, and if problems arise, how to solve those things. Right. Doesn't happen instantaneously. But given enough time, people work it out. And I think that's really beautiful. And for me, you know, understanding civil society, the informal interactions, the human relationships that we build on a daily basis um, are really what fills in a lot of things that economics doesn't understand and tries to control in ways that might lead to a lot of 
unfortunate unintended consequences. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I agree with pretty much everything you said there, like, you know, and you're talking and you, you sort of passed over, you were pointing out like, you know, the sort of little things in life, the mundane things, some of the things that happen on a day to day basis, just everywhere in, in our societies, you know, gift giving is one of them, but we can even go smaller and think of something like a, like a handshake, right? Like, why is that useful? Like, I mean, someone might say, okay, especially in this day and age, you know, maybe it'll come with a higher cost than one wants, but barring COVID-19 actually then actually, you know what, maybe that is a good point. Cause when you flesh that out further, you think that people, because they wanted to keep that social institution have figured out alternatives like fist bumping and things like that. Like what does that signal? Right. Mm-hmm. As you said, it comes with a greeting and, and so on. It shows you can trust the person. Like, I think that's another very small thing we do every day or a lot of people do at least that's kind of part of the same cut from the same cloth as this conversation. Oh, absolutely. So it's things like shaking hands or just greeting somebody. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing mm-hmm. great. Right. Those are you know, kind of responses that we just almost do intuitively, you know, just, you say when somebody says, "Oh, I'm, I, why did you ask me that question?" You know something's wrong with something, right? Yeah. Um, but shaking hands, it's like I reach my hand out to you, you reach your hand out to me. That's a sign that we want to have a relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that over the past now coming up on two years almost that we've we've been locked down and changed the, the way we socially interact in a very dramatic and very quick way. I'm worried that a lot of these. You know, subtle things that help us build these relationships are being eroded. Mm-hmm, I agree uh, with that. Yeah, and, and wearing a mask. We're we're in a state, Washington State, here where masks are mandated and indoors, and um, we're very strict. One of the more strict states here in the United States that um, uh, on these masking requirements. And I, I remember teaching this past fall in this, and sitting in a, a, a classroom, a seminar, and you couldn't see anybody's mouths. Mm-hmm. You just saw their eyes, and really understanding that man, I can't know if they're really with me on this concept or if they're uninterested or if they're outright hostile to what I'm saying. So just little facial tics, mm-hmm. um, the way we interact with one another, lean into one another, you know, step back from one another are hugely important. And if we change those things overnight, if we consider, well, they're not important and there's ways to optimize other things, right. and we can just roll over this stuff we might be doing a lot more damage than good in the long run. And I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the nature of civil society coming out of this pandemic. Yeah, me too. And, and I think like just, just the richness of being in person for a conversation. I mean, this is the next big best thing you and I are doing, uh, you know, actually seeing each other on Zoom. But, but in reality, like, you know, it would probably be a lot more of a richer interaction if we were actually sitting together in a room and we got to chat beforehand and after. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I think is, is very important. I absolutely agree with you. When people are masked or we're staying away from each other or, you know, some, something like a, how someone is feeling in a room is brought down to, oh, we can click a, you know, a button on an app or something and take a poll and see how people, like all that's, you know, we lose a lot of that actual the good stuff that you know the intangible stuff in the human relations human interaction aspect that i think um ultimately leads to better things whether you're trying to brainstorm with colleagues at work or something or just get to the bottom of a conversation you're interested in i think a lot of results that are better come from the richness of human interaction not just you know the the sterile version if you will absolutely and and so much of our scholarship and political economy misses that point and, you know, now that we are tasked with coming up for policies and how to deal with these pandemics and run the economy, we overlook the stuff that yeah, we need to be together. We need to gather together um, during the holidays and to exchange with one another and to smile and to laugh and to cry uh, and even to be angry with one another. These are all important things to mm-hmm. just think that it can be done with some kind of econometric model where we put in the right variables and, you know, pull the right policy levers on interest rates is illusionary. Those things Mm -hmm. matter without a doubt, interest rates and, you know, regulations and costs and all those things matter quite a bit, but there's that, that fuzziness to all of this stuff that is just so crucial and we need to pay attention to more. Absolutely. I had it written down, uh, that I want to note to you that, I guess an economist would be really missing the point of the story of Jesus in the manger if he asked why the three kings didn't just bring cash, right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I hadn't even thought about that. We, we, we do have um, a fair amount of you know, religious um, notations in our our, um, our article. But yeah, that, you know, just <laughs> you, you kind of think about that. Most people would laugh at that. But again, you know, our econ- econometric models are, well, we're optimizing baby Jesus's utility by, you know, bringing cash instead of 
incense, myrrh, and, and frankincense. Right. Yeah. But I don't even know what those things are. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> to, to, to start being like, oh, we don't need frankincense and myrrh. How do you know he didn't already have some or something like that? That would be to miss the point of the of the <laughs> gift-giving process for sure. Definitely right. not in the holiday spirit or, or Christmas for that matter. Uh, Tony, it, it's, been, it's been great chatting with you. I'm going to move us ahead to the formal wrap-up here as our time is winding down. Um, in each of our episodes, we want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to put a finer point on everything and, and conclude for us. So let me officially say and ask do you we've talked about a lot of course to bring everything full circle and put a finer point on it what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why we give gifts and whether that's a good thing and in in other words if you wanted someone to just take away one or two or just a few things from everything we've talked about what would that ultimately be i think when i was a kid i didn't really understand the full importance of giving when people would tell you that, you know, it is better to give than to receive um, because the gift will then come back to you tenfold. I could never figure out how that was. In fact, there's a Proverbs, it's Proverbs 11, 24 to 25 that talks about this. It says, when one person gives freely yet gains even more, another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And that's the lesson that Scrooge learned at the end of A Christmas Carol, that to give unto himself without expectations of return will actually lead to more returns to you. And that's a beautiful thing. Giving unto yourself and being seen as a person who is generous with your time, your energy, your resources, your emotions, makes you a person that other people want to interact with. And that connects us all. And that makes us a much more prosperous economy, but a prosperous society. So I just, you know, to folks during this holiday season, give unto others because you too will receive and happy holidays. I think we'll leave it there. Excellent. Happy holidays to everyone listening. Happy holidays to you, Tony. And thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye.